do pray that as we turn now to your word that you'll instruct us lord we we just pray that you'll give us new understanding and lord we we just thank you for john and lord we pray that tonight will be such a blessing for him so father lead us in the power of your holy spirit lord that everything tonight might result in real blessing especially for john but for the rest of us as well because we ask it in the name of jesus amen Amen. right well it is super that john has become a christian it's lovely that tonight we can drag him upstairs into the bathroom and, and <laughs> baptize him <clears throat> and of course with baptism as john knows by now is how we are initiated into the Christian life. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, you know, in the Bible and see exactly what baptism means. I mean, of all the initiations, you know, that Jesus could have picked, why is baptism um, so special? And we're going to see that. But first of all, a few points uh, just to clarify at the beginning. Because... Baptism is one of those subjects where there is a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about it. And there are three things, firstly, that I want to say, and we're going to look through the scriptures very quickly and see these. First of all, it is right to get baptised as soon as possible after you've become a believer. All right, And we're going to see that in the scriptures. A second thing is that there is no need whatsoever for special services, there is no need whatsoever for special places of worship or anything like that. Tonight, it's the bar. And that is fine. That is not invalidated in any way at all. And then thirdly, any genuine believer can baptise a new convert. You, you do not need to be special. Tonight, it's fallen to me. I have been asked to do it. But it could have been anyone. It's just that somehow tonight it's me. And you see, what we need to understand is that we have got to stay right away from the institutional church rigmarole about baptism. There is nothing religious about it whatsoever. We here are nothing to do with religion. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. And our only concern is what the Bible teaches. And traditions which go against the Bible have no authority or value or worth whatsoever. And for instance, it doesn't matter if someone's been baptised as an infant. If you become a Christian, you need to be baptised as a Christian. And let me say something else as well. We're baptising John tonight, but no way are we Baptists. We're Christians. This has got nothing to do with religious denominationalism or anything like that at all. We are followers of Jesus. Now, what I want to do to begin with, if you turn to the Acts of the Apostles, let's see, in contrast to what we make of it today, let's see baptism in the Acts of the Apostles. If you go first of all to Acts chapter 2, and verse 38 <clears throat> and this is the first sermon the first evangelistic message that got preached in the life of the church and in Acts 2 38 we read this this is Peter preaching he's finishing his evangelistic message he's telling them about Jesus and Peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit can you see it the early church the evangelistic message was become a Christian and then get baptized it was all part of the same thing you know no long gaps or anything like that go over to Acts chapter 10 and find 47 Acts chapter 10 and verse 47 now this was the first sermon that the early church preached to the Gentiles. Peter was preaching in Jerusalem to Jews. This is the first evangelistic message to Gentiles, to non-Jews. Verse 47, and this was sort of Peter preaching to them. And what happens is the Holy Spirit falls upon them and Peter realises that they've become Christians. 
And he says, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them. Now notice that. He commanded them. We're not talking options here. We're talking about the first commandment that we obey when we become Christians. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, can you see there in the general preaching of the church, as they went out and as people became Christians, they immediately baptized them. They, you know, immediately put them through this initiatory act, which we are later going on uh, to understand its meaning. But go now to Acts 8, because I want to show you now just how informal the early Christians were about baptism. I want to show you how it's tremendously special to be baptised because you've become a Christian. But there's a tendency that we make a bit of a palaver about it, and, and, and it, can, it can get religious. Can you see what I mean? Let's see how laid back the early church were. Uh, Acts 8, in, um, in verse 26, we've got a story about Philip. Now, Philip was a travelling evangelist. He just kind of, you know, went as the Lord led him. All right. Verse 26, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert road. And he rose and went, and an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a minister of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seating in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to spirit said to Philip, Go up and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Then it quotes from Isaiah. Go down into verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, pray, does this prophet say this, himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what is to prevent my being baptised? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. Can you see? He led him to Jesus. What did he do? Back? Did he wait till he got back to church? Were there special services? No. He became a believer. He baptised him as soon as possible. Go over to next chapter, <coughs> Acts 9. And let's see what happened when... Paul the Apostle got converted. You remember that Paul was as against the Christians as you could get. He really hated them. And then Jesus revealed himself to him while he was going to Damascus. Let's, uh, and of course, you know, sort of uh, Paul becomes um, a believer. Let's, let's pick it up from verse, uh, verse, verse 17. And a guy called Ananias is sent to Saul. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, now this is three, you know, just after Paul has become a Christian. <coughs> Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes because the Lord blinded him just temporarily, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised. Now, actually, go over now into chapter 22, verse 16. So I want to show you something else. Again, it's about Paul getting converted, because uh, on one or two occasions, we have um, a record of when he gives his testimony. All right. And in chapter 22, verse 16, Paul is giving his testimony. Okay? And he's talking about when Ananias came to him. And listen to what Ananias said. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Ananias knows, because the Lord has told him, that Paul has got converted just a couple of days ago. He goes, all right, he prays with him, and he says, what are you waiting for? We've got to get you baptised. And so he baptises him. Go to Acts 16. 
Acts chapter 16 and 5 verse 24. <coughs> now here we've got Paul and Silas having been um, thrown in jail. We'll, we'll start at verse 25. About midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's fetters were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison's doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped under Roman law. If, if, if prisoners were in your charge and they escaped, you were automatically put to death. Uh, but Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Men, what must I do to be saved? Here he's saying, I want to become a Christian. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They're witnessing to him. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once with all his family. Now, can you see the way that the early church did it? One more. Go over to Acts chapter 19. And this is Paul again. And this is when Paul meets some people who are genuine Christians, but they'd had very poor teaching, alright? They didn't really understand too much about it. Uh, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, we know that these are Christians, alright? They're disciples. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we've never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. They're really, really low on teaching, these guys are. And he said, into what then were you baptised? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now what you've got here is you've got some people who have become Christians through the testimony of John the Baptist before he was killed. Because remember, John the Baptist was preaching Christ. He was telling people about Jesus. And of course there were lots of people who would have become Christians and believed on Jesus through the preaching of John, but would have never actually met up with Jesus personally while he was on the earth, or with the early church, because the early church were just kind of filtering out through the then known world. And Paul meets up with these guys, they're Christians, they've been baptised with John, but because John's ministry was before the church started, these guys had never been baptised in the name of Jesus. They'd never been baptised properly as Christians. Now look what, look what Paul do, does. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there you have it. When the early church met people who weren't baptised, they baptised them. You didn't have to be anyone special anything like that at all they just went ahead and did it because that is what jesus had told them to do right so we've seen baptism in how it was treated how it was administered if you like and of course it was quite simply as soon as possible at the first bit of water that was deep enough that they could find but what i want to move on to now is right okay we know what the uh what baptism is but what does it mean what why baptism well, the actual word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. And baptizo comes from bapto, which means to dip. Now, this word, you see, we tend to think that baptize specifically refers to baptism when you become a Christian. But what you've got to realise is that baptism was a word that already existed. It was just used by the Christians. And if we can understand the original meaning of the Greek word for baptism, we can understand a lot about baptism itself. And this verb, bapto, to dip, was used among the Greeks, and remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, alright? And this word was used by Greeks for the dyeing of a garment. If you had a garment that you wanted to dye, you had to bapto it. And of course, what you do is you submerse it in the dye, you see. So down it goes, and it comes up different to how it was before. <laughs> or alternatively, it was a word that was used for drawing water 
by dipping one vessel into another. So for instance, you go to the village well, down goes the bucket, up comes the bucket with loads of water in, and then you get your vessels that you want to take home, and you backtow them in the bucket. It means to dip, to submerge under the water. Now, that was its physical meaning, but it also had a common metaphorical meaning, in the sense it was used for another idea as well. And for instance, Plato, who you will be aware of, the Greek philosopher, I hope you've all studied Plato like good Christians, Plato used this word metaphorically for being overwhelmed. For being overwhelmed. And the word bacto was metaphorically used for the idea of being overwhelmed. Now, I want you to remember that because we'll be back to that later. Now then, the actual physical significance of baptism is that as we're going to see, it signifies being identified with Jesus. But what I want to show you is that the Bible teaching about being identified with Jesus isn't just sort of like the equivalent of being a member of the Socialist Party and therefore being identified with Neil Kinnock. We're going to see that biblical identification means to become actually one, to be made one with Jesus. And what baptism signifies is the sense of our being made one with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Now, what does that mean? Well, think of it. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to sin. That was the reason he came, that through his death on the cross, the sin of the world could be judged on him, therefore a way made open from man to God, if man so wanted to take that road. But the point was that Jesus died to sin. But then, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised to a new life of power. Because when he was raised from the dead, his ordinary human body that he'd had for 33 years now became a glorified body. So can you see the picture that Jesus died to the power of sin, but he was raised to a new life of, of power, absolute power, the power of God. And that what you've got is that to be baptised, and we've seen it means to be dipped, to be submerged. That what happens is that as you are submerged into the water, that's a picture that of, of you dying to your old life. Your old life is being buried. The old you is being buried. And then when you come out of the water, a new you, created by the power of Jesus within you, is then living from now on. So it's a death to the old life of sin and being raised up to a new life in the power of Jesus. The picture is that when you become a Christian, I've said this before, literally there's a new you created. The Bible says a new creation. And the moment you were converted, a new Jesus version you was created, you see. And that left just the old sinful nature you. And baptism is signifying the death of the old you and the emerging of the new you in the power of Jesus. So really what we're talking about is this. Your baptism, and this is why it's so tremendously important to be baptised, is that your baptism is literally your funeral. And if you think about it, let's go back just talking physically. If someone dies, if somebody dies, they really ought to have the, the, the kind of kindness to turn up to their own funeral, if you think about it. Someone dies, we bury them. You expect them to be present at their funeral. Now, in exactly the same way to become a Christian is that you're dead to the old life and therefore your baptism is your funeral. But remember, Jesus didn't just die, he was raised from the dead as well. It's a new life. Uh, and, and I was really struck some, um, some years ago when a friend of mine, who'd been a Christian for some years but hadn't been baptised, asked me to baptise him. Again, not because I was special, but just because I was a mate. And he said, oh, I ought to get baptised. Now, we were out in the country, in the fellowship I was in, then we didn't have a building or anything like that. We just met in homes. 
and uh, you know, a bath would have done. But fortunately, we knew another fellowship a few miles away, and they had a portable baptistry. You know, it's sort of like unscrewed and everything. They made it especially. So we went and collected that. We set it up in the garden, screwed it all together. And it was really beautiful because they'd shaped it like a coffin. <laughs> that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Because, you know, really excellent. Now, what I want us to do now is to go through the scriptures and to see some of the pictures that the Bible gives us for baptism so we can understand more of what it's meaning. And if you go first of all to 1 Corinthians 10, one Corinthians chapter 10. And we just want the first two verses. <clears throat> Remember this is Paul talking to Christians. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what Paul is doing here is that he's taking the picture of Israel being delivered out of Egypt and passing through the Red Sea. And he's taking that as being a type for the Christian life. So much so that he says, think of it, that when Israel came out of Egypt, their going through the Red Sea was almost their baptism, their rebirth as a nation. Now what I want us to do is, 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 is to go back to that story and to take the symbolism that we know it stands for in the Bible. Now when we're talking about Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the wilderness and into Canaan, we're talking history. It actually happened. But because God was in that history, it is also an allegory. So it's a historical allegory arranged by God for us to understand more of our faith. Because think about it, the picture that you've got here is that God, his people are in Egypt. Now Egypt represents the world. Egypt represents your non-Christian life before you got converted. And think about it, because while Israel was in Egypt, they were slaves. And as slaves, they had taskmasters over them who used to beat them and make sure they worked. Now, those taskmasters were a picture of our sins, that, that there was no escape from our sins. And the Bible says that he who sins is a slave to sin. So it's a picture of the non-Christian life trapped by sin. But more than that... Israel, uh, Egypt was ruled by Pharaoh and Pharaoh in the Bible is always a picture of Satan as being the God of this world. Now what happens is that God doesn't want to leave us in the world, he wants to save us. So what he does is he brings his people out of Egypt and they escape from Egypt by going through the Red Sea and it was a miracle that enabled them to do that. All right. So there we have a picture of being converted. So Paul says that the nation was coming out of Egypt now. What was the first thing that happened? Baptism. They went through the water of the Red Sea. Now, God didn't just want to get them out of Egypt. He actually had somewhere else for them, a place called Canaan. And Canaan literally means the land of promise. That's what Canaan means. And that God wanted to deliver them out of Egypt and then to bring them into a new life, into a new land that was all their own. But you need to understand too, that before God got them into Canaan, into the fullness of the new life that he had for them, he took them through the wilderness for 40 years. Now you need to understand the picture here. Israel is a, uh, Egypt is a picture of the world. And Canaan representing the, the new life that we have in Jesus, based simply on the promise of Jesus, that, that Canaan represents that. But the wilderness wanderings are tremendously important. Because the point is that it only took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took him 40 years 
to get Egypt out of Israel. In fact, he never did, because barring two or three, all the Israelites who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. Now, can you see that you're being brought out of the world and you're being led into Canaan, the fullness of life in Christ? But in order to get to Canaan, you have to go through the wilderness, and the wilderness represents always death. Because you see, the point is, it's not enough that God gets us out of the world. He's got to get the world out of us. But in fact, if you think about it, we were born into the world where part of the world he can't. And so what happens is, God delivers us from the world through death. We die to it. Can you see the point? Now, remember, we're seeing that baptism represents death to the old life and being raised to the new life. But the point is, the Christian life is a continuous process of going into Canaan, new life in Jesus, via the wilderness of death to self. And we're going to see that whereas the minute you get converted, you have a new life, and that a death blow is dealt to the old life, it is by no means automatic that the new life happens immediately. And in fact, we have to grow into the new life, and God has to deal with the old life. And this is what being a Christian is all about. God systematically killing off bit by bit the worldliness, killing us off to the world, so that that bit of us that at last has been dealt a death blow then can be raised up in the new life of Jesus. Now this is what the Christian life is all about. It's a continuous, as we follow Jesus, it's continuously the Lord bringing us into death to self and then being raised to a new life in Jesus. And it's literally what the Bible teaches, realising that the Christian life, in fact, isn't what we do at all. It's that Jesus wants to live through us. And to the extent that we die to ourselves, then Jesus can actually begin to live his life through us. And baptism is what signifies that. You're saying, Lord, I realise that now you've got to bring the old me into death so that Jesus can live through me in my place. Go now to 1 Peter. Now let's see another picture that we have of baptism. And the first epistle of Peter, and if you find chapter 3. Yeah. 1 Peter 3, and we just want verse 20 and 21. Don't worry about the verses that, that precede this because that's, that's not our subject. Um, in fact, he's talking about uh, you know, some certain demons who were responsible in a certain way for bringing on Noah's flood. But what we want is, in verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the significance of the story of Noah's flood is this. Remember, in the flood of Noah, the entire world that was just handed over to sin and rebellion against God, all those people of the world were destroyed, all right? They were destroyed by water. Whereas Noah and his family, because they were believers, that was the only reason, it's simply because they loved the Lord. What happened was that the Lord then decided to start a new world all over again through Noah and his family. So again, can you see the picture? Noah's Ark is about death and destruction to that which is old and in rebellion against God and a completely new start. Because remember, whereas the entire world was in dreadful rebellion against the Lord at that point, it was totally destroyed and the Lord started it off all again through eight people who were believers. So there you have it again. The death and destruction of the old life of sin 
and being brought into that total new start that Jesus gives each one of us. And when it says here as well in verse 21, it says, baptism now saves you, all right? Now, obviously, we're not saying here that if you don't get baptized, you're not going to go to heaven. In the salvation series we're doing at the moment, we're seeing very clearly that the word salvation means something much broader than what we think it does. When you talk about being saved, that means more than simply having been saved from the penalty of sin. Because we're Christians, we've been saved from that. No problem, if you've believed on Jesus, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. But the point is, salvation is far more than that. Because God doesn't just want us to save us from the penalty of sin, but he wants to save us from the power of sin. And that's going on in our lives moment by moment now. So when Peter says baptism now saves you, he's not saying that you won't get to heaven unless you're baptised. That's not what he's saying at all. But he says, <coughs> not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. What he's saying is that baptism <coughs> is essential in the process of now that you are saved, and you never will go to the lake of fire, now that that has happened, baptism kicks off the power for the process of God delivering you from the power of sin in your life. So it's important to understand that we're not here saying that, that you won't go to heaven if you're not baptised, but we're saying that baptism is essential if we are to know what it is to begin to be set free from the power of sin in our own lives. Now go to Romans 6. Romans 6 is important because it's Paul's main teaching on baptism. And I've given you pictures. Now we're going to move on to the meat, if you like, the technicalities, all right, of why baptism is so important. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start from verse 1. And Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says, is the Christian life just carrying on like we were before, knowing that Jesus will forgive us? Well, the beautiful thing is that if you do, Jesus will forgive you, but that's not the point. He says, by no means. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Right, now listen to this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Firstly, Paul is assuming they've all been baptised, isn't he? He's just assuming if they're Christians, they're baptised. And he says, when you were baptised, he says, you were baptised into Jesus, but because you were baptised into Jesus, you, you were also baptised into his death. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. There you are, your baptism is your funeral. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now can you see here the identification with Jesus? Baptism symbolises what happened to you when you believed on Jesus, the moment you became a Christian. And what happened the moment you became a Christian is that you became one with Jesus. You became totally identified with Jesus. The Bible says that you were literally put into Jesus. And one of the recurring phrases used in the Bible about believers is that they are in Christ, in Jesus. Now, you need to understand what this means, all right? Because... Being put into Jesus means quite simply this, that you share the experience of Jesus. Now, how can I illustrate that? Uh, I mean, sort of say, uh, say you've got a wallet, all right? You take out your wallet and someone gives you a fiver. Now, you put the fiver in your wallet, all right? Now, the point is, so long as that fiver is in the wallet, it shares the experience of the wallet. It goes where the wallet goes. Can you see that? To, for the fiver to be in the wallet means that from that point onwards, there is shared experience. In the same way, if you then put that wallet in your jacket, as long as the wallet is in your jacket, where the jacket goes, the wallet goes. 
Now the point is, being put in Jesus means that in the same way we share his experience, but it is not just from the moment that we're put in Christ, because Jesus finally is outside of time. And it means that in 1971, that night when I became a Christian, not only did I share the experience of Jesus from 1971 onwards, but I shared immediately Jesus' experience throughout eternity. It's retroactive. Can you see that? And one of the experiences that Jesus has had is that he has died to the power of sin. Now think about it. If you are in Christ, which means you share his experience comprehensively, and if Jesus is dead to sin, then what does that mean about us? It means we too are dead to sin. And if Jesus was resurrected to a new life of power and glory, what does that mean for us? It means that we have been resurrected to a new life of power and glory. Go down into verse 6, because Paul builds on this. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body uh, the, so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Now here Paul is talking about the fact that because we're believers we share Jesus' experience to sin. We share his experience of death to it. Now, he says that our old self was crucified and that the sinful body, and these phrases here are simply talking about our sinful nature, all right? He says that our sinful body, our old self was crucified or destroyed. Now, that might at first lead you to think, ah, oh, we haven't got a sinful nature anymore. But that could hardly be the case because, I mean, if I wanted to check up, if you lot still had a sinful nature, even though you're Christians, I would ask your husbands and wives. In the same way that if you wanted to know whether I've still got a sinful nature, ask Belinda. She'll tell you that I have. Now, we need to understand exactly what Paul is saying here, and we need to go into the Greek, all right? Because when he says our old self was crucified, he says that the sinful body might be destroyed. Now, it's understanding what that word means that gives us the key here, because it does not mean to annihilate. Now, sometimes, with the word destroy in English, it conjures up the picture of annihilation, as if it's gone, I've destroyed it. You know, you destroy a check. Well, it's gone, there's nothing left of it. Now, that is not what the Greek word here means. The Greek word Paul uses here for destroyed is katagio. Now it comes from two other Greek words. It comes from kata, which means down, and it comes from argos, which means inactive. And that what it literally means is to reduce to inactivity. It means to bring to none effect. Uh, if you just go over into chapter 7 and verse 2, we see it again. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning her husband. And that word discharged there is katagio. And it's simply saying that, I mean, if a wife, if her husband dies, her wifeship is rendered inoperative because she's no longer a wife. Her husband's gone, she's not a wife anymore. So her wifeship and all her responsibilities as a wife have been katagio. They've been brought absolutely to nothing. And this is what this word means. Now, another good translation of this word katagio, and it's the one that I think is best, is to neutralize. That's a good translation, neutralize. Now, think of me, think with me for a moment that you've got some acid and alkaline. Now, if you've got a bottle of acid and you pour in a bottle of alkaline, you neutralise the acid, all right? Now then, picture that your sinful nature is the acid. It stings, it's dangerous, because sin is, it stings. Now, when you become a Christian, the life of Jesus and the power of the cross is like pouring alkaline on the sinful nature. It neutralizes it. But if you then remove the alkaline, the acid is still there as powerful as it ever was. 
And the picture we've got is this. To the extent as Christians that we live in faithfulness and obedience to Jesus and live trusting him to overcome our sin, to that extent, his life within us will neutralise our sin. But the moment that you're not trusting in Jesus and the moment that you're not in obedience to Jesus, the alkaline is removed and the sinful nature is still there as venomous as ever. And the Christian life is the continuous process of the alkaline of Jesus' life being poured on more and more of our acid so that it's neutralised. It's not a once and for all thing, it's continuous. So that the very day that you die, I mean, say you stay alive for another 60 years, that very last day that you live, little parts of your sinful nature, your acid, is still going to be being neutralised by the life of Jesus. This is not a once and for all thing, it's a progressive thing. It goes on throughout our lives. And then in verse 7, he says, He who has died is freed from sin, but if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what I want you to get is that here we're told that in order for this process of the Lord overcoming our sinful nature, it's going to be simply by faith, by believing that Jesus has done it. Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin. He says, believe it. Count on the fact. Now the thing is this, to the extent that we believe that Jesus has set us free from sin, we will be. But if we doubt it, we won't be. And that what the Lord will be doing all the time is to build faith in us so that we're able to believe our freedom from sin rather than all the time giving in and believing what the Bible calls our evil heart of unbelief. And this is why there's a continuous battle now between the Holy Spirit on the one hand and our sinful natures on the other. And it's our choice, moment by moment, whether we cooperate with the Holy Spirit or whether we cooperate with our sinful nature. So then, what we're seeing is this. Baptism signifies the fact that because we're Christians, a death blow has been dealt to the old sinful you and the old sinful me. All right, And a new Jesus you came into being the moment that you received him as your saviour. Paul says in Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new has come, the old has passed away. Mm. So what we've got, a death blow has been struck to our old sinful natures, and a new you has come into being the moment you believed. But all that is a potential. It's not immediate, it's a potential. And the Christian life is through continued faithfulness to Jesus, that potential becomes more and more actual. So that in actual fact there will be more and more of Jesus and less and less of ourselves. And that is what the Christian life is about, bringing us into death so that Jesus can live through us in our place. Go over to Colossians and Paul writes to the church at Colossae. And Colossians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 12 and 13. Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 12. Right, and Paul says this. He says, And you were buried with him in baptism, they have it again, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So there you have it. To be baptised is to attend your own funeral. 
It's to say a death blow has been dealt. It's no longer going to be the old me. From now on, it's going to be Jesus as my Lord. If you at that point turn to Matthew, one can't really do a talk on baptism without uh, having a look at uh, Matthew chapter 28. And we're just going to see where Jesus actually gives the commandment that the church was to baptise its converts. Let's actually see what Jesus said. We need to understand it's all to do, it's all about being obedient to Jesus, submission to Jesus as our Lord. And this is Jesus speaking, Matthew 28 verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the significance, of, well, there is great significance in that. But one aspect is this. If all authority has been given to Jesus, then everything is subject to him. If everything is subject to him, that includes you and me. So can you see, we're talking obedience here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There you have the representation of the Trinity, all right, the entire Godhead. But listen to this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what Jesus was envisaging here is that these Christians, as the Church of Jesus Christ, would be living in submission to him, living lives of obedience. They would bring other people to Jesus who would then be baptised and then seeing their lives of obedience to Jesus would live lives of obedience to Jesus themselves. So by our example of obeying Jesus in all things, we are to bring other people into that obedience to Jesus as well. So there you're seeing it. Christian baptism in the sense that when, you're, when you become a Christian, you get baptised. It's your funeral. You're saying, it's no longer going to be what I want. Jesus is my Lord. And I don't live to myself anymore. I'm going to die to myself. And I'm going to live only for what Jesus, as my Lord and Master, wants. Amen. But before we draw to a close, one or two other things. Because, there, as I said earlier, there's confusion about baptism. And it's good to dispel it while we're on the subject. Now, remember, I said at the beginning that baptism, it refers specifically to Christian baptism, and we've seen that. But remember, it is also a general term. It was a perfectly ordinary Greek word, meaning simply to dip. Now, what you have to be careful is that you don't get one baptism in the Bible mixed up with another baptism in the Bible. Because in the Bible, there are different baptisms. So far, we've looked at baptism in the sense that you get baptised as a declaration that I am now following Jesus. That's one baptism, but there are other baptisms as well, and we mustn't get confused about them. And we're just going to see one or two others, and I'm just going to give you the, the idea of this. For instance, we've already seen there was a baptism of John. John was baptising people, alright, before Jesus actually came on the scene, alright, so there was one baptism, alright, but let's have a look at another one which certainly does apply here, and if you go to 1 Corinthians 12, now to be baptised in water, as we've been seeing tonight, is something that you must do, it's a definite act that you have to do, but I'm going to show you now another baptism that happened to you when you got converted and you didn't have to do anything. It happened to you. You didn't do it. It happened automatically. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and go to verse 12. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now what Paul's saying here, this is another baptism. This happened to you the moment you got converted. Whether you knew it or not, this happened to you. You see, because Christianity is more than an individual relationship with Jesus. It is that beyond everything else. 
but it also has a corporate aspect. Because although you become a Christian individually, which is absolutely right, the point is that millions of other people are Christians as well. And the Lord wants to build us into a corporate fellowship so that we're not just relating to Jesus, but we're relating to each other as a community within a secular community. And that community is what the Bible calls the church. And one of the pictures given of it is the body of Christ. If you think about it, I live in my body, all right? So all of us Christians, Jesus lives in us. My body does what I tell it to do. And corporately between us, Jesus wants us to do what he wants us to do so that he can live his life on earth through us. And that what we're seeing here is that when you got converted, you were baptised into, you were dipped into, you were dunked into, you were submerged into, you were made absolutely one with the body of Jesus. You are now part of a worldwide movement of the body of Christ. So that you're not just in it on your own. You have a family, a body to support you so that all of us can be growing together in the Lord. And believe me, we need each other. So there's another baptism. You were baptised, submersed into the body of Christ. Let's see that one again. Go over into Ephesians. You can probably appreciate you get into a terrible mess if, if, you, if you get your baptisms mixed up here. So we're going on to see another one next, and uh, you know, boy, does that one get mixed up with a few others. Ephesians 4, and we're going to start from verse 4. And this is Paul saying, now look at the context. The context of this is verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The context of what Paul's writing here is about our corporate life together in the church. He says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And the one baptism he's referring to there is the baptism into the body of Christ. And he's talking unity. He's saying all the unity that there should be between us as Christians. So there's another baptism. You were baptised automatically into the body of Christ the moment you believed. Tonight we are going to baptise John, but the moment John believed, Jesus baptised him into the body of Christ. That's something that Jesus does. And just very quickly as well, Jesus also used the metaphor of baptism to describe his coming death on the cross. All right? Do you remember he said, I have a baptism to be baptised with, all right? and I've come to kindle fire on the earth. So that even when Jesus was looking forward, or in the sense that he knew that his time to go on the cross was coming, he called that a baptism. And I refer you back to Plato, who used the word metaphorically to be overwhelmed. Because on the cross, Jesus was overwhelmed with our sin, and Jesus was overwhelmed with the judgment that should have come on us. And yet he took it on himself. And then in closing, in closing, we're going to look at the last baptism, and it's the baptism in the Spirit. Now, this is tied in with being baptised in water, in the sense that in the same way that I've demonstrated you clear, to you clearly, that once you get converted, you should be baptised in water as soon as possible. It is also true that when you've become a Christian, you should be baptised in the Holy Spirit as soon as possible and that what we're going to see is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a work of supernatural power within you whereas baptism in water is an outward symbol alright now also you need to understand that we're talking we've got two baptisms here we've got baptism in water which is a physical act to be baptised in the Holy Spirit is an entirely supernatural one. Also, tonight I will baptise John in water, but only Jesus himself baptises with the Holy Spirit. Now, with these two baptisms, you can have one without the other, alright? And they can come in different orders, alright? But the point is, you need both. 
Let's actually see this, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Remember, we are not now talking about being baptised in water. We are now talking about being baptised in the Spirit. Because when we baptise John tonight in water, the water is the symbol of death. When you're baptised in the Holy Spirit, Jesus actually bestows the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit upon you. That is a directly supernatural thing that only Jesus does. If you go to Acts 1, Acts chapter 1. First of all, verse 5. Now this is Jesus talking to the disciples shortly before he ascends into heaven. He says, For John baptised with water... But before many days, you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Go down into verse 8, and he then says what this baptism in the Spirit is for. He says, but you shall receive power, and that word in the Greek is dunamis. It means dynamic. It's the word we get dynamite from, he says, all right? He says, you shall receive dynamite when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And interestingly enough, that word for witness is martyria. It's a martyr. We're not just talking about someone who talks about Jesus. We're talking about to be a witness is that you've died for Jesus. You're a martyr. You've died to your life because now you only live for the pleasure and the service of Jesus. So he says, you'll receive dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses or living martyrs for me. And this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural endowment of power. Now if you go over into chapter 2, we will actually see what happened when the disciples were baptised with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is, you know, we're not talking about being baptised in water. They're simply praying together, all right? Verse 2, suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, to be filled with the Spirit is a synonym for being baptised with the Spirit. They're interchangeable terms. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And of course, it's when you're baptised in the Spirit that you are then opened to and begin to move in the supernatural, miraculous gifts and power of the Holy Spirit. Let's just see one more. Go back to John chapter 1. And let's actually have a look at the preaching of John the Baptist when he was witnessing about Jesus. And John chapter 1, first of all, verse 29. The next day he said he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that is receiving Jesus as your Saviour. That's what your baptism in water is all about. It's saying, I've received Jesus as my Saviour, all right, now I live to him. So here we see Jesus firstly as the Lamb of God, our Saviour from sin, all right? But now go down into verse 33, because John goes on to say something else that Jesus came to do, because he didn't just come to save us. He came to do something else as well. He said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that is God the Father, to baptise with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. So that what we've got is that to be baptised in water, as John is going to be tonight, is his outward declaration of intent to follow Jesus. He's saying, I've, I've died now, I've died to John, and now I live to Jesus. That's what water baptism is all about, the outward declaration. An outward sign, if you like, of what happened to him the moment he believed on Jesus. But to be baptised in the Spirit is the receiving of supernatural power to act out that intent, all right, to actually live that resolve and to be a witness and a means for other people coming to find Jesus as their Lamb of God as well and to be a witness to others. So can you see that, the baptism in the Spirit? And to end now, we're just going to quickly go through the Acts of the Apostles and some of the 
uh, the verses we've already read, but I just want to show you these things working in the life of the early church. The fact that when people got converted, they were baptised in water and they were baptised in the Holy Spirit. But notice there'll be different orders. The order really doesn't matter. The only important thing is that if you find out that you've missed out on either of these baptisms, get them done. <laughs> All right? No problem. If you've missed out on one, get it. Be it water baptism or be it baptised in the Holy Spirit. First of all, back to Acts chapter 2. And the first verse we read when we were looking at Peter preaching the first evangelistic sermon. And I want to show you that not only did the early church preach baptism in water, they didn't just say to people, become Christians and then be baptised in water. They said, become Christians, be baptised in water and be baptised in the Holy Spirit. Let's actually see this, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Again, Peter getting to the end of his, his, his evangelistic talk. He says, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, baptism in the water, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Go to chapter 9. Paul the Apostle again, when he got converted, remember Ananias has gone to him, Paul got converted, fell off his donkey, and it comes to everyone who wants to follow to be, follow the Lord, the day will come when you fall on off your donkey. All right. You'll then realise that you were the donkey, but I mean, that's, 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 that's just the way it goes. And he's been blinded, so he's been converted, he's been blinded, and Paul's just lying there helpless, waiting to see what the Lord's going to do next. Ananias is sent to him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight, healing, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Ananias comes in, Paul's a Christian, he's been converted three days before, lays his hands on him, he's healed of the temporary blindness, but he's baptised in the Holy Spirit. Then he rose and was baptised. So Paul the Apostle got converted, he became a Christian, then he got baptised in the Spirit, then he got baptised in water. Go to chapter 10. And this is back with um, Peter preaching to the Gentiles. Chapter 10 and verse 44. And this is Peter preaching to the Gentiles. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. They heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now what happens here? Peter is preaching to this crowd of Gentiles. And while he's preaching the gospel, well, what's happening to them? One by one, they don't wait for the end. They don't wait until the appeal. I mean, they're getting right with God while Peter's preaching. So by the time he's finished, well, before he's even finished his address, all of them have become Christians. They've believed on Jesus. And then quite spontaneously, Jesus baptises them with the Holy Spirit. And here, Peter's sermon is interrupted because they're all speaking in tongues. You see, they've been baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptising these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. So for these people, again, they became Christians, then they got baptised in the Spirit, then they got baptised in water. But can you see that in each one of these things, it's bang, bang, bang. The moment that... that that the Christians knew that people had got converted, they got them baptised in water and they got them baptised in the Spirit. No mucking about at all. Alright, go over, and this is the last one, our last scripture for tonight, back to that uh, little story in Acts 18 when Paul meets these disciples in Ephesus who had only known the baptism of John. We'll go through it again. Verse 2, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He says, have you been baptised in the Spirit? He, here, Paul is assuming that they've been baptised in water. And he says, Acts 19, sorry, Acts 19, verse 2, he said, 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he says, have you not been baptized in the Spirit yet? All right. And they say, uh, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, these are really backward. I mean, they've never had anyone to teach them. So then Paul thinks, well, oh, if they haven't even been baptized in the Spirit, I wonder if they've been baptized in water. He was assuming that. So he says, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, oh, I thought so. You see, because they were used to meeting people in that situation who had been converted through the ministry of John, were genuine Christians, believed on Jesus, but because they'd been scattered and miles away, hadn't received an update <laughs> on what Jesus was doing, you see. So they hadn't had proper baptism, etc. So Paul says, look, John baptized with the baptism of repentance to tell the people to believe blah, blah, blah alright so here he just puts some straight on it that look mates having John's baptism isn't enough alright the same as if you were baptized as an infant as an Anglican or a Catholic sorry it's not enough not enough you got to be baptized as a believer so he goes through this with them alright on hearing this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus so here Paul gets them to water and he baptizes them in water alright so he ticks that one off now they're converted which they already were years before but now baptized in the Holy Spirit so what does he do next and uh, when Paul laid his hands upon them the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied there they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and this is the pattern the order is finally not important. The only thing that matters is that if you are a believer and following Jesus, you must ensure that you are baptised in water and that you are baptised in the Holy Spirit. And the way you do this, in order to get baptised with water, you find a Christian and say, will you baptise me in water? And the Christian does it. In order to get baptised with the Spirit, you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, will you baptise me in the Holy Spirit? Because no Christian can do that. Only Jesus can actually give you supernatural power. And of course, the Lord does that in various ways. And there are times when, if, if it's helpful, you can go to believers who will pray with you and lay hands on you. And then Jesus baptises you in the Spirit through the agency of the laying on of hands. Anyway, there you have it, baptism in general, but obviously more specific water baptism. And uh, so now we are going to pile up the stairs with John. Uh, we're going to run the bath, and because we love him, we're going to put run. some... It's run. Because we love him, we've put some hot water in it as well. <laughs> and uh, so let us end there and up the stairs and...